guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. I've said it before, and I will say it again. For just a buck a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes, in addition to knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent podcast. Speaking of coffee, I've also got Words for Granted mugs that are only available to contributors on Patreon, so please check those out. Thanks to David for his recent contribution. A quick note about the previous episode. I made a general remark about how women in ancient Greece were excluded from men's activities. This is largely true, but a fan on Twitter pointed out that in the city-state of Sparta, women enjoyed special social privileges that women in other Greek city-states did not. That detail escaped my generalization, and I thought it was worth mentioning. With that, let's get on to today's episode, the first in our new series on proper place names. The study of place names is called toponymy. This comes from the Greek root words topos, meaning place, and onoma, meaning name. While by no means comprehensive, the case studies in today's episode are designed to give you a general overview of some of the main trends that we find in this unique subcategory of etymology. The main toponyms that we'll be discussing in this series are habitation names. Habitation names describe places that are inhabited by people, like countries, cities, and villages. This may seem like common sense, and it is, but there are also other categories of toponyms such as hydronyms, which describe bodies of water, and oronyms, which describe hills and mountains. So. Where do place names come from? One of the most common sources of place names, particularly of place names in the New World, comes from the migration of peoples to new territories, usually via conquest or colonialism. For example, when British colonists arrived in North America, they brought with them names such as New Jersey and New York. Well, before there were New Jersey and New York, Back in England, there were, and still are, plain old Jersey and York. In 1664, James Duke of York gave the territory of modern New Jersey to Sir George Carteret and Lord John Berkeley, and it just so happens that Sir George Carteret was born on the British island of Jersey. After acquiring the territory, Carteret gave it a nostalgic name in honor of his homeland. In that same year, the Duke of York also acquired the region of what is today New York City, and quite obviously, he named it after his duchy. For the record, the name of the city of New York was later applied to the state of New York, not vice versa. As we can see, the reason why the particular names of Jersey and York were chosen for these particular states is due to particular historical circumstances. Of course, before the English acquired these territories, which would go on to become American states, they were occupied by a variety of different peoples, and over the course of these different occupations, these territories had different names. During the early 17th century, 
parts of New Jersey and New York City belonged to a North American Dutch colony called New Netherlands. Like New York and New Jersey, the long-dissolved colony of New Netherlands boasted a name in honor of a distant homeland. Before the Dutch colonization of the New York-New Jersey region, parts of New Jersey were actually known as New Sweden, which was named after the homeland of its Swedish colonizers, and New York City was known as New Angoulême, which was named after the hometown of the French king who commissioned the New World explorations of Giovanni de Verrazzano. But before any European colonists arrived in North America, these regions were of course occupied by Native Americans, specifically the Lenape tribes. After the English had acquired the territories of New Jersey and New York City in the late 17th century, the Lenape people had been virtually wiped out, so there's no universal consensus about what the Lenape themselves called the region. Some scholars believe it would have been Sheichibi, literally the place bordering the ocean, while others believe it would have been called Lenape Hoking, literally land of the Lenape. Please take my Lenape pronunciation with a grain of salt. The latter of these two is the more widely accepted original autonym for the region, so I'm going to go with that one. For studious listeners, an autonym is the name by which native people inhabiting a place call that place. On the contrary, an exonym is the name by which outsiders call a place. Let's stick with our North American narrative for just a bit longer. After the first 13 colonies gained independence from Britain and began their westward expansion, it became more common for Europeans to appropriate pre-existing native names for the lands they were acquiring. The names of American states such as Ohio, Oklahoma, Michigan, Kansas, Alabama, and many others are anglicizations of Native American place names. Now, even though state names such as these are derived from the languages of native peoples, I would still say that they're products of colonialism, and this is for two main reasons. First, the anglicization of these native words is a permanent reminder to us that, historically, English-speaking people turned out to be the more dominant sociolinguistic group in these regions. Second, these indigenous names don't precisely correspond to the names of regions as defined by indigenous peoples, but instead represent arbitrary political state boundaries established by European proprietors. The adaptation of native autonyms into foreign languages is not unique to Europeans colonizing the New World. It's actually something that's been going on since the beginning of history. The ultimate origins of the modern British city of York after which the American New York is named, demonstrates this principle quite well, several times over. The earliest recorded name for York is Eboracum, which is a Latin word dating back to the late 1st century CE. Right off the bat, this name is an indication of the Roman Empire's historical occupation of the region at that time. However, the Latin-speaking Romans did not purely invent the word Eboracum, at the time of the Roman occupation of Britain, the Celts, broadly speaking, were the main ethnic group on the island. Although there's no Celtic written record describing what the natives themselves called the region, 
Linguists have determined that the native Celtic word for the place would have derived from the Brittonic word eborakon, which meant place of the yew tree. As you might expect, the yew tree was a common tree found in that region. When the Romans took over, they merely Latinized this native Celtic place name by changing the words ending to um. So how did we get from the Latinized eborakum to the modern English York? After the Romans withdrew from Britain and the Old English-speaking Anglo-Saxons arrived in and conquered Britain, the word eborakum morphed into eoforwik, which is based on an etymological misunderstanding. In Old English, eofor meant boar, and wik was a suffix indicating a place. After a few generations of their inhabitation of the island, the Anglo-Saxons apparently forgot that they themselves hadn't named the city, and they falsely morphed eboracum into an Old English word that literally meant the place of wild boars. In the 9th century CE, Old Norse-speaking Vikings conquered the Anglo-Saxon settlement of Eoforwick, and they Norsified the place name to Jorvik. In Norse, the name Jorvik sounded like the word for horse bay, so this name led to yet another misunderstanding of the city's etymology. After the Vikings were driven out of the country, the name re-entered Middle English as York, and that's the name for the city that exists to this day. And due to the particular circumstances of English colonial history, that name was transferred over to the New World. I hope I've made it obvious that even though the British toponym York technically preserves an ancient autonym native to the British Isle, the word's morphological changes are still a transparent window into the city of York's history from the point of view of foreign migrations. The derivation of York from the Celtic root word eburakon, which you'll recall meant yew tree, represents another common source of place names, that is, the physical characteristics of a place. In Latin, the word Mediterranean literally means middle of the earth, so it's appropriate that the Mediterranean Sea is the body of water dividing the great land masses of Europe and Africa. The name of Brazil comes from the Portuguese phrase Terra de Pau Brasil, or the land of redwood trees. You'll never believe it, but Brazil has a lot of redwood trees. I should note that this phrase may actually be a translation of an autonym given to the land in the indigenous Tupi language. Then, of course, we have the ironic naming of Greenland. Greenland, as I'm sure most of you know, is not, as its name deceptively suggests, a country filled with rolling green pastures, but rather a country that's two-thirds a permanent mass of ice. It's the opposite of naming a place based on its physical characteristics. According to legend, the exiled Norwegian Viking Eric the Red settled in Greenland and gave the country its misleading name in the hopes that it would attract new settlers. Whether or not this legend is true, the Norse word Groenland definitely, literally means green land. Before the Scandinavians arrived in Greenland, it was, and still is, inhabited by indigenous Inuit peoples, and the original Inuit name for the region was Kalalit Nunat. Yet again, I don't know anything about pronunciation in the Inuit language, so take that with a grain of salt. Like the native Lenape name for the New York, New Jersey region, 
Here is yet another example of an indigenous autonym being erased on the world stage thanks to a more dominant sociolinguistic colonial power. Another common source for place names comes from the commemoration of historical individuals. Some examples of commemorative state names in the United States are Washington, named after George Washington, and Virginia, which is named after the British Queen Elizabeth I, known as the Virgin Queen. Some other examples include Colombia, which is named after Christopher Columbus, the Dominican Republic, which is named after the Christian Order of the Dominicans, and America, which is named after the explorer Amerigo Vespucci. I may be repeating myself unnecessarily here, but please keep in mind that this commemoration happens from a colonial point of view, not from the point of view of those colonized. I don't think that the native populations of Colombia were necessarily jumping for joy when Christopher Columbus arrived in the New World. Of course, not all commemorative toponyms are forced onto indigenous peoples by foreign colonists. For example, the Russian city of St. Petersburg is named after the Russian ruler, Peter the Great. In the ancient world, some toponyms were misunderstood to be commemorative when they in fact were not. Rome was long believed to be named after Romulus, the mythical founder of the city and its first king, but this probably isn't true. The ultimate etymology of Rome isn't known for sure, but some etymologists have connected it to Rumon, which was the Etruscan name for the Tiber River. Another example of this kind of ancient folk etymology is likely found in the name of the Hellespont, today known as the Dardanelles. The Hellespont was the name of a narrow strait found in modern-day Turkey that draws part of the dividing line between the continents of Europe and Asia. According to Greek myth, the strait is named after the princess Helle, who fell into the river and drowned. However, the reality is that the name of the river is probably derived from an older, non-Greek language. The true etymologies and meanings of many place names in the Old World, meaning Europe, Asia, and Africa, approximately, are often unknown, simply because the names are just really old. Sometimes, toponymy can give us a glimpse into a region's history not through etymology per se, but through syntax. Take, for example, the American Great Lakes. In the construction of English hydronyms, remember that's the technical term for names of bodies of water, the generic body of water is usually preceded by a proper name, as in the Pacific Ocean, the Adriatic Sea, or the Mississippi River. However, in the case of the Great Lakes, the generic word lake precedes the proper name. Lake Huron, Lake Ontario, Lake Superior, Lake Erie, Lake Michigan. Why are these particular lakes an exception to the general syntax of English? During the 17th century, French settlers had colonized the region of North America surrounding the Great Lakes. Naturally, they gave the lakes French names such as Les Lacs Supérieurs, which literally means upper lake. As it turns out, I'm also not very good at pronouncing French, but I do know that in French, the adjective follows the noun, whereas in English, the adjective precedes the noun. When English colonists won the French and Indian War and acquired the lands on the American side of the Great Lakes, they anglicized the pronunciation and spellings of the formerly French lakes, but they kept their French syntax for some reason. 
I should note that of the five Great Lakes, only Lake Superior and Lake Huron have a purely French etymology. Huron comes from a French word meaning bristle, which referred to a type of Native American headdress. The names of the three other Great Lakes come from French adaptations of Native American words. We can also find this noun-before-adjective French syntax lingering in certain English words such as notary public and attorney general. According to standard English, it would make more sense to say public notary and general attorney, but these words were borrowed into English directly from French without ever adjusting their syntax. But that's a digression. The last thing I'd like to talk about today in this overview is toponymic suffixes. There's a handful of English suffixes that, if attached to a base word, can make that word sound like a place. Let's take the arbitrary word popcorn and stick the suffix ville onto it. We get popcornville. Popcornville sounds like a place made of popcorn. Or how about uh, candles and berg? Candlesburg sounds like a place of candles. Some other suffixes like this are ton, stan, Bury, Burrow, and Chester. There are others, but I think you get the idea. All of these suffixes were, at one point, words that meant town or settlement in one language or another. I want to share the etymologies of these suffixes with you, and in order to keep things simple and brief, I'm just going to rattle them off one after another in no particular order. Burg, as in Williamsburg and Pittsburgh, comes from the common Germanic root word borgs, which meant a fortification or burrow. This one has been around since Old English and has cognates in other modern Germanic languages. Its variations include bury, as in Canterbury, and burrow, as in Peterborough, both of which mean the same thing. Ville, as in Nashville and Charlottesville, comes from the French word villa, meaning city. Tun, as in Washington and Irvington, is another one that goes back to Old English. It literally meant town and is cognate with town. Stan, as in Afghanistan and Pakistan, comes from a Persian word that meant home. If we trace its roots all the way back to Proto-Indo-European, this Persian-derived suffix stan is actually cognate with the modern English words stay and stand. I think that's very interesting. The suffixes Chester, Caster, and Sester, as in Manchester, Lancaster, and Leicester, respectively, all derive from the Latin word castrum, which referred to towns with military camps. It goes without saying that the historical migration of the languages from which these suffixes derive has affected their modern geographical distribution. It's not surprising that the suffix stan derives from Persian since most toponyms that end in stan are in the Middle East. It's also not surprising that British place names derived from castrum date back to the Roman occupation of Britain. Alright, that's it for this one. Hopefully you found this grab bag of toponymic stories interesting. Next time, we'll be doing our usual deep dive into a single place name. If you love the show, you can show your support via Patreon. If that's not in your budget, you can still support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, or your podcast directory of choice. I'm on Twitter at, at @wordsforgranted and Facebook as Words for Granted. 
And you can email me directly with questions, comments, or concerns at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Have a great day. I'll talk to you guys soon.